0: and say with our lives um, that your love far surpasses all the rest Father there's so many things that we can love in this world that our hearts can become attached to and I thank you that you are in the business of smashing our idols weaning us of anything that might come in the way of worshiping you So I pray, Lord, that you would help us now to focus our hearts on your word, that you would keep our minds off of distractions, even my mind, Lord. I pray that I would be focused on your word and on the text, and I pray that you would guide us all into what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our journey this morning in the book of Exodus. Exodus. You hear the word exit in there. They're leaving Egypt. And so now we are up to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, all the way to verse 21. So you can turn there, but it's going to take me a few minutes to get there. I, I want to start by just reflecting on uh, something about our world and then uh, move to Uh, set the stage for our story, and then we'll jump into Exodus 19. So just want to start off by um, mentioning that, you know, something maybe you all have seen uh, in the news in the last three days. There was a horrible shooting in New Zealand. I saw that Friday morning, 49 people dead last time I checked, um, some in critical condition still, uh, many more wounded. These are human beings, right, made in the image of God and senselessly killed by other humans made in the image of God. A few articles down, I saw another news story um, from a more Christian source, um, the Christian Post, I believe it was. Fulani Muslims in Nigeria are... Arming themselves and they're gunning down hundreds of African Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what one story you have Muslims getting gunned down. We don't really know much yet about the shooter. And then another story you have Christians getting gunned down by Muslims, burning churches, displacing thousands of people. And as I was reading it, all of a sudden I just started to cry. It's like, this world is so broken. Why? And you start to read the, the news analysis of it, and, and they say, oh, the problem is hate. Extremism, radicalism, hate. But that's not quite right. The problem is far deeper than just an emotion like hate. The problem is actually something that we're supposed to hate. Hate with all our might. The problem is evil. I don't know if you hate evil. I'm sick of it. I hate seeing it on the news, on almost every feed. And I hate it in my own heart. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of not hating it enough. Anger and hate may be gunning down people all around the world, but anger is in our homes too. Just read the book of James in the New Testament, and he talks about how we use our tongues to hurt people made in God's image. That's evil. Every angry thought and word would love to be murder if it could. Every lust, every lustful thought would be unrestrained immorality if it could be. Evil always aims at the extreme even if it doesn't get there for whatever reason. And all the evil and the countless other shades of evil that we see around this world and the death and the suffering and the destruction and the chaos, they're not part of God's original creation. Why is the world this way? The first thing we need to know is that it wasn't supposed to be. And people ask, why does this happen? The world's broken. Something's wrong. This is not the beautiful Eden that we read about in Genesis 2. That place was a holy place. But this place, this world, is a place set on fire by human sin and death and Satan and hell. This world, for all its beauty, it is not paradise. Last time, I checked. There are some beautiful things we see around us, right? And yet it is a world that's groaning under the curse of sin and death. And it is in desperate need of rescue. And here's what is so important to see for our story today. The the reason that evil is in this world is because we humans have rebelled against our creator. The story starts at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-3. to With God creating Adam and Eve in his image. To enjoy life under his blessing and to, to fulfill a task that he had for them of representing his rule in the world. Ruling over creation and reflecting his character, his goodness by the way they thought and the way they acted through creation. And God placed Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the beautiful garden of Eden. Now, there's two things that I want you to know about Eden before we go on. I want these two things to be kind of like mental furniture that you put in your head for the next few months. So I hope they stay there forever, but at least for the next couple of weeks as we work through the, the last part of the book of Exodus. So these two things about Eden that I want you to just put in your head is first, the biblical authors, they repeatedly portray Eden as a temple and Adam as a priest serving God in that temple, all right? This should make sense to us, right? A place, a temple is a place where heaven meets earth, where God's space and man's space overlap and where man can meet with God. Eden was the first temple where God would come and walk with Adam and Eve. Now, if you're wondering like, okay, where's that in the Bible? We're going to get to that in the coming weeks, especially when we talk about the tabernacle. That's, we're saving it for that. But I just it's important to have that mental chair in your head. Eden was a temple, and Adam was like a priest in that temple. And I'll prove it more in the weeks to come. Second, I want you to know that this garden-like temple of Eden, it's pictured by later biblical writers as being on a mountain. Eden's a temple, it's on a mountain. For example, I'll prove this one, Ezekiel 28, 13-16. you got the prophet Isaac, Ezekiel speaking most likely about Adam and, and he says, you, Adam, were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. So, whoever he's talking about, some people think it's Satan, more and more biblical writers are saying it's, it's Adam that he's talking about here. Uh, you were on... Eden, the garden of God, you are on the holy mountain. Eden is a mountain. God's holy mountain. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Most temples in the ancient world were on mountains or high places. If you read throughout um, the, the story of Israel, they're always going and flirting with idols on the high places. It's like... They're not worshiping God on the temple mount. They're on the high places. Well, why do people go on a mountain? You ever heard of a mountaintop experience? Right? Right? We could go on a mountain and you feel close. It feels so big. Some people feel like they can really connect with God when they're on a mountain. Well, if you want to get to heaven, right, or be close to heaven, doesn't it make sense to go up high? That's why mountains... Became locations for temples, from time before there was time. You know, before we even have records, even the Babylonians built built mountains for their temples called ziggurats, right, or pyramids, right? So you have mountains on temples. Or, or, I said that wrong. Temples on mountains, <laughs> um, and so Adam, remember, is a priest on Eden, God's holy mountain, and he's serving God. He's supposed to be worshiping and obeying in the temple. And all of a sudden you see something enter the temple that would make every true Israelite shudder. A reptile, an unclean animal is coming into the temple. What is it? A snake. snake. Okay. So if you're an Israelite and you're making the connections that this is pictured as a temple, you're like, "Uh, what's a snake doing in the temple? The priest is not doing his job. Okay? The snake should not be in the temple. And then you find that this is a talking snake. It's not just any snake. Satan is animating the snake. We find that later in the Bible story. This snake is ultimately being used by Satan to get Adam and Eve to do something unholy and unclean. To get them kicked out of the temple. He's trying to get them to break God's word. And here's where all this connects to our passage in Exodus this morning. The whole story of the Torah, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the account of God's plan to bring us rebellious humans back to the mountain where he dwells. And back into fellowship with him once again. It's also about his plan to deal with sin and uncleanness in us that gets in the way of that being possible. So the Bible, again, it starts with God in relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden Temple of Eden. And the Bible ends with God dwelling with his people in the new creation, which is pictured as a holy mountain where God lives. Isaiah 65, 25. They will neither harm or destroy on all my holy mountain. Friends, that's what we as Christians were made to long for. God would dwell with us once more and we will be with him. Eden will be restored and yet it's going to be infinitely better. It's not just going to be a garden on a mountain It will be a whole new world. The glory of God will bust out of Eden. And it will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. You want to go there. Believe me. You were made for life with God. And you will never find the rest that your heart is longing for. Until you find your rest there. In the new creation. That's begun now. With our life in Christ. But there's a huge problem. That gets in the way. Of us being there. And going there. Our sin will keep us out. Unless it's dealt with. Our sin will result in us. In our exile. Right? Just like Adam. No exceptions. If we have any sin. Even the slightest sin. We cannot enter the new creation. Ever. Our sin has to be dealt with. Our hearts have to be purified and changed. Think about it. How could it be any otherwise? God's holy mountain, God's new creation, His temple, it would cease to be holy if we were there and had even one greedy or lustful or bitter thought in it. We would wreck it quickly, Just like Adam and Eve wrecked Eden. And so the question the Bible tells us that we've got to ask is, how can I have clean hands and a pure heart so that I can ascend the mountain of the Lord? How can I get back up the mountain that we lost in Genesis 3? And the answer, as we'll see at the end of our time this morning, is the cleanness And righteousness that only Jesus can give us. And so with all this said, we're going to go through Exodus now. Exodus 19 to 20 in five steps. First, we're going to look at God's goal in this passage. And ultimately, as I've already said, God's goal, he wants to dwell with his people. Second, we're going to look at God's people. Who who the people God dwells with are supposed to be. God's goal, God's people. Third, we're going to look at God's law, his rules for living in his land, in his place. Fourth, we're going to look at Israel's problem, refusing to hear God's rules. And fifth and finally, we're going to look at God's mediator. Moses is the mediator, the go-between for Israel and Yahweh. So first, God's goal in salvation. God wants to dwell with people. To see this clearly in our passage today, we need to take a quick trip back into the texts we've already looked at in Exodus. So first, um, if you've got your Bible open, flip back with me to Exodus chapter 3 and listen as I read verses 1 to 5. Exodus 3 verses 1 to 5. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So here we see Moses is at Mount Sinai, right at the beginning of the Exodus story. And there, at Mount Sinai, Moses encounters the living God in a fire. Even the ground in God's presence is holy. And God speaks to Moses from the fire on the mountain and tells him to go lead Israel out of Egypt and bring them back to the mountain to worship him. He says that in verse 12 of chapter 3. Go get Israel, bring them back to the mountain of God. And now fast forward in your book of Exodus all the way to chapter 15, verse 17. Israel has now been miraculously delivered out of Egypt. And now, Israel and Moses are singing a song about salvation. And the song goes like this. I won't try to sing it for you. Um, You will bring them, that's Israel. You will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Did you catch that? God's going to plant Israel... It's like garden language here. He's going to plant them in the place where he dwells. What's that place? His mountain and his sanctuary. That's the same word for tabernacle, the temple. So this song of Israel, in this song, uh, God's son, remember Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. God's son is being led by God to his mountain where he's going to be planted like a tree in a garden. And there God's people in God's place are again to enjoy God's blessing and God's presence forever. That's the picture we're given in this song. God wants Israel to be with him on the mountain, on his mountain. And remember, that's symbolic for the place where God dwells, his sanctuary, his temple on earth. Now listen carefully. This This whole idea of... God's mountain can actually be different mountains. It's not like there's a specific mountain in the Bible that's like God's mountain. It has to be Sinai. No, it's, it can actually be different mountains. It, because it's actually more of a concept or an idea. God's mountain is the place where God is. And any mountain can represent that. Eden can represent that. Where Adam walked with God. Or Mount Ararat, where Noah landed with his ark after passing through the waters of the flood and offered sacrifices to the Lord. Or Mount Moriah, where Abraham worshiped the Lord with Isaac as they sacrificed a ram instead of Abraham's one and only son. Or you got Mount Sinai. Or you could have the Temple Mount, which is in Jerusalem, called Mount Zion often. Ultimately, though, all of these mountain pictures, um, all these experiences that God's people have with him on mountains, they point to the final end time mountain of God, which, God God's, which is ultimately God's new creation, where all who trust in Jesus will be planted and will dwell with God forever. So as you keep, keep that in mind here, and, and think that as, as we come to this immediate context, this mountain that they're at, this Sinai mountain, it functions here as an important picture in the Bible's story. A picture of how humans that are rebellious can actually come back into right relationship with God and ascend the mountain. For Israel, though, here in this story, Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert – it's kind of like training wheels for them, preparing them for bike riding in the promised land of Canaan. In other words, they're going to learn at this, this mountain all that they need to know for how they're to live when they get to the new creation rest of the promised land. So this this picture of the promised land where God's ultimately going to plant them, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which will eventually have the temple – this, this uh, uh, mountain experience here at Sinai is, is almost preparing. It's try, God's trying to prepare them for that. Teach them some lessons. So, to sum up point one, God wants to be with his people. You'll see that really clearly in Exodus 19, verses 3 and 4. They're at Mount Sinai. Verse 3. Moses went up to God, and God... And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Did you see that? God saved them out of Egypt, like an eagle carrying his young, or saving somebody, right? I saved you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. All salvation in the Bible, it comes from God. It happens through the work of God. And ultimately, it brings us back to God. Being with Him is the great goal of our salvation. So many people want to say, you know, do you want to go to heaven? Oh, of course I want to go to heaven. It's better than the other place. Or, it's going to be great. I'll see my friends. Heaven is is only heaven because God is there. Heaven is God's place. You want to go to heaven because you want to live with God, ultimately. Everything else is just extra. Everything else will be more beautiful because he is there, the fountain of all life. And so, Israel is being brought to God. Being with Him is the goal. But, as we said earlier, evil, sin cannot be on God's mountain. It has no place in the Garden of Eden and it has no place in God's good world. If you think you want evil out of your newsfeed and out of this world, can you imagine how much God wants it out? Like, I want shootings to be done forever. Can you imagine how much God wants shootings to be done forever? He made people. He cares. He has a plan. But only the pure can be with God on his mountain. As the psalmist asks in Psalm 15, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell in his holy place? You know what the answer is? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up his soul to an idol. That's the theme of this sermon, right? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Clean hands and a pure heart. How do I get that? Keep listening. Point two this morning. It focuses on what kind of people Israel is to be if they're to ascend the mountain. Enjoy God's presence. God's holy people. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So notice three things about those verses, if you would. First, um, if Israel obeys God's voice or literally listens to God's voice, his word, and if they keep God's covenant agreement that he's making with them at Sinai, if they do that, then then one, they'll be God's own possession among all peoples. Two, they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, in the Bible, only priests go into the the innermost part of the temple. And so here it says the whole kingdom is going to be A kingdom of priests, the whole nation is able to enjoy God's presence just like Adam did years before in the Garden of Eden if they obey God's voice perfectly. And three, they will be a holy nation. In other words, being God's own special, holy, priestly nation, it's conditioned upon keeping God's covenant. In other words, do you want to be holy? Keep God's words. Keep all of them and keep them perfectly, never fail, ever. Then you can be holy. Then you can be God's special people. Then you can be a kingdom of priests. Then you can all enjoy access into the presence of God. I hope you see a problem there. How does it happen? We'll get there in a second. Remember why Adam, though, got kicked out of the garden. It's because he broke the words of the king of the mountain. He did not listen to God's words. He broke his covenant with the Lord. And yet notice in Exodus 19 verse 8. Notice what Israel says when God gives these conditions to them. They say in verse 8, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. As Obama used to say, Yes, we can That's their motto. God says, I need you to do this. And they're like, yes, we can. And so, can they? We'll find out. Israel promises here to be covenant keepers. We're going to keep the covenant. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 16, he compares this whole Sinai event to a marriage ceremony. In other words, God comes down on the mountain and he reads his terms of marriage to Israel and says, do you? And Israel, here's the, the, the rules for being in a relationship with God, a marriage-like relationship. And Israel says, I do. We will keep it. What are the terms? The terms are God's law. That's the third point this morning. Now, I'm assuming that most of you have probably heard of the Ten Commandments You might not have them all memorized, but you've heard that there's Ten Commandments in the Bible that are God's law. And we're going to actually dive into the content of the Ten Commandments in more detail next week. We're actually going to dive into all the commandments next week. But this week, I just want to focus on the concept that God is giving Israel a law that they're to listen to and that they're to obey. So first, let's notice some of the details surrounding the giving of the law. I can imagine Israel at Sinai singing their song from Exodus 15. We're going to the mountain to live with God. There's a lot of excitement in the air, right? He's going to plant us on his mountain, yay! And all of a sudden, things take a sobering note. First, in verses 9 to 11, God tells the people... To purify themselves and wash themselves and get ready for him to descend on the mountain in a thick cloud. So the whole mountain is about to become a a temple of God, the place where you meet God. And it's going to become consumed with the presence of the living God. And so, second, in verses 12 to 13, Moses is supposed to put a fence up around the base of the mountain to keep these people from coming too close. The same was true of the tabernacle that Israel would eventually build. There was an outer fence around it to keep the uncleanness of Israel and the nations out of God's space, his holy space. If you would cross that boundary with your uncleanness, it's basically like saying sin and evil belongs back in the garden. Sin and evil belongs in God's good world. That's what it's like to come dirty into the temple. That's what it would have been like for Israel to ascend a mountain without clean hands. And the punishment is death for crossing the fence. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Finally, on the third day, God is going to come down on the mountain... And there's going to be a loud trumpet blast, heard in heaven. And when the trumpet is sounded, the people are to approach the mountain and hear God speak. Are they going to be allowed to ascend? Stay tuned, right, as we keep going. Right now, though, I'm just going to read verses 16 to 25. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were There were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. Remember the burning bush at Sinai? We have it again. God descends on the mountain in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Not all the people. Moses And Moses went up. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Here the answer is clearly Moses. And then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord and gaze and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the people, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. So the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the answer is no. They cannot ascend. Not yet, at least Encountering the living God is serious business. Yes, He is a gracious and a good God, but He is not safe. Bringing evil in the presence of God, it's like bringing paper into the presence of the sun. It's going to be consumed. Our God does not tolerate sin. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. But there is a way for Israel. To cross the fence. To become right with God. There is a way for them to be the holy nation that we read about back in verse 6. Remember what that way was? We talked about it a little earlier. It's listening to God's word and obeying it perfectly. Keeping the law. Do that and you gain access to the sanctuary of God. Moses says, Moses says it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 24 and 25. Here's Moses' words. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, the law, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It, the law, will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. So if Israel wants to be righteous, if they want to be qualified to ascend the Temple Mount, if they want to have clean hands and pure hearts, then they've got to observe this law perfectly. And then it will be righteousness for them. And this law is what God gives them in chapter 20. speaking. From the fire, as the Israelites tremble in terror at the base of the mountain on the other side of the fence, on the safe side, Israel does not feel very safe. The law of God comes down, God speaks, and it's basically the terms for ascending and staying on God's holy mountain. Keep the law and you will live in God's presence. Break the law and you die just like Adam. You get kicked off the mountain. This law ultimately can be summed up. We'll look at this a lot more next week with these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love your God and love your neighbor. Love the image of God as yourself. So again, we're going to tackle the content of the law next week. But just know for now that it's the terms of the covenant. It's the terms of living in right relationship with God. Now that we've already seen, though, we've already seen, though, Israel's first response to the, the words that come down. Remember their I do to the marriage proposal? God says, are you going to keep my covenant? you going to keep the vows? And they say, we do. We're going to keep your word and live faithfully in covenant relationship. And yet, there is something a bit ominous about this whole scene at Sinai and i wonder if you can notice it as i read exodus 20 verses 18 to 21 now exodus 20 18 to 21 all the people remember they've just said we're going to listen to god's word we're going to obey all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and when the people saw it they trembled and stood at a distance then they said to moses speak to us yourself And we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain in you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So these verses, they take us to the fourth point this morning. Fourth, Israel has a problem. Refusing. To hear God's voice. Did you notice what the people said here? Let not God speak to us or we will die. God's word, God's law, it should bring life. The hope of living with him, not the fear of death. Keep these words and everything is going to be well with you. The Lord says. And yet it seems that the Israelites have this built-in aversion to hearing God's words directly. And this strikes an ominous note in the story. In and of itself, you might not think, oh, that's, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. But as we continue on through Exodus, it ends up being a picture. The refusal here is a picture for us of their fundamental problem. Their hearts are hardened to God's voice. They continue to refuse to listen to God who called them from the mountain. If this is how things go on Sinai, remember, which is like the training wheels for living life in the promised land, things don't look too promising for when they get there. Their time in God's promised land is going to be short-lived. Exile will be inevitable. And you know what? We'll get there eventually, but Moses knows this. He tells them, in Deuteronomy 29, you're going to go to the land and you're going to get kicked out. That's what Moses says. Sadly, Israel's inability to hear God's words renders them unable and unwilling to ascend the mountain. Instead, they call for somebody to go up for them, a go-between. They call for Moses to go get the words from God and bring them down so that they can hear them from Moses and obey them. Go get them, Moses. We'll obey them. We promise. We can read God's reply to this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. We're going to keep them. We promise. And this is what God says. He says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. The implication, they did not have such a heart. No, they had hearts that forgot the Lord and did not keep his commandments always. But we're not there yet. For now, just just see that there's something wrong with this whole picture here at Mount Sinai. Israel's supposed to be going to the mountain of God, where God's going to be with them, and they're going to be with God. Remember the song in Exodus 15? But at Mount Sinai, they learn that the only way that this whole relationship thing is going to work is in the context of covenant keeping. That's the only way a marriage relationship works. If you keep the covenant, if you keep breaking the covenant, eventually divorce happens, right? Right? God's covenant comes to them in words, words that they refuse to listen to with the naked ear, words they will only hear through Moses. And this leads us to our fifth and final point this morning, God's mediator. In our passage, Moses ascends the mountain of God and gets the words for the people. They only come up to the base of the mountain. That's what we'll learn next week. The leaders of Israel, actually, eventually, they go part way up. But still, it's only Moses who goes all the way up into the cloud where God himself is and speaks face to face with the God of Israel. Only Moses gets the covenant stones given to him to bring down to the people. Moses alone, he's the go-between for God and Israel. The people could not come up the mountain because they did not have hearts that were able to listen and obey God's covenant words. And we'll see in Exodus 32, a little later in the story, they're a nation of covenant breakers, from the least of them to the greatest. In that story, in Exodus 32, it's a story of the golden calf. We're going to see that as they're receiving this covenant from the Lord, the terms for how they're to live on his, His mountain, they break them as they're receiving them. It's like, Uh, A groom having a, a, a bachelor party filled with immorality on the week of his wedding. Breaking the covenant right as he's getting married. It's insanity. And that's what Israel's doing. The people are evil and unfaithful to their very core. And the law they're receiving only serves to reveal the depth of their evil. It can't change their sin problem. And it can't fix their hard hearts. They, they get the law. But it can't change them. They can't come into the presence of God. They need someone to go for them. Instead of being a holy kingdom. Of priests. Who are all planted in God's sanctuary. They become. A people. Who need priests. To go for them. They'll need the book of Leviticus, we'll get there, to dictate special rules for how these priests even can enter God's presence. Because the the priests have sinful hearts as well. And because they can't ascend the mountain to meet with God, they're going to need God to descend the mountain and to meet with them and live with them. They're going to need a tabernacle. A tent where God can dwell in their midst with His glory contained. It's a sacred The tabernacle is a sacred space. It's like a little holy mountain, a little Eden in the midst of Israel, a space where only priests could go all the way in to worship, and they could only go in through sacrifice, through the blood of lambs shed. To cleanse them from their sins. So Sinai reveals the pre-existing problem in every Israelite heart. None of them had hearts that would faithfully keep God's covenant. And render them able to dwell on the mountain of God. God's law detailing how life was to be lived in his promised land. It would prove to be impossible for them to keep. Even for Moses himself, the mediator. In the story of the Torah, these five books... Even Moses dies outside the promised land. Yes, Moses finds forgiveness, but ultimately Moses is not the one with clean hands and a pure heart. That's amazing. Even Moses is not qualified. Yet Moses spoke to us of another prophet who would come after him, who would be. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord spoke and said to me, as Moses talking still. They have spoken well. In other words, it's true. They would die because they were evil. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he will speak to them all that I command him. Did you catch that? The people need a mediator. They need a go-between. And Moses is writing about another go-between who's coming. Another mediator. Someone to who they will finally listen. And one day, the prophet like Moses came. His name is Jesus. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 17, we read an amazing story. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his brother, his three closest disciples, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. So they're going up a mountain, right? Ring some bells from our story. They're ascending a mountain and on the top of the mountain, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and he touched them and he said, Get up. Do not be terrified. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. I want you to see the significance here of this story. Many years after Sinai, in Matthew 17, we have another son of God walking the earth. But unlike God's other rebellious sons, Adam, Israel, Noah... And we could go on and on with all these failed sons of God. Jesus was a faithful and righteous son of God. When he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Remember when Israel was tempted in the wilderness? We learned about that a couple weeks ago. How would it go? Not good. Jesus tempted in the wilderness. He stands strong. Faithful to God's word. He doesn't buckle under temptation. He did not break God's covenant law. He's the only human to ever have lived who did not break the covenant. He alone has righteousness and the purity needed and the clean hands needed to do what Psalm 15 calls for. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You know, this is not in my text. But if you keep reading through Psalm, Psalm 15 to Psalm 24 are like a... A chunk of Psalms in the Bible, and Psalm 24 actually answers the question in Psalm 15: Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then Psalm 24, you say, you see someone ascending the Temple Mountain. Lift up your heads, O you gates! Lift them up, you ancient doors, the doors of Jerusalem, the temple, the city where the temple is. Lift them up that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this king of glory that can come in? Who can ascend the mountain? The Lord, strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. He is the one from Psalm 15 who can ascend the hill. He is Jesus. He's the only one. And in this passage, here in Matthew 17, we see Jesus, like Moses long ago, beats his followers up a high mountain. And there, Jesus meets two other prophets who'd met God on high mountains before in the Bible. He meets Moses and Elijah. And then the glory cloud that had long ago overshadowed the Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the Temple of Solomon, this same glory cloud descends on the top of the mountain and it shines around them. And Peter, who knows his Bible, knows that the glory belongs in a tent, in a tabernacle. And it's not safe for sinners to be around. So Peter says, "Uh, how about I build three tents? Because there's three glorious beings here. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what's going on, but... We've got to keep this thing contained. Okay? They're terrified. And then... A mighty voice speaks from the cloud. Just like God spoke from the cloud to Moses years before. And it says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, 17. And just like the Israelites of old... The disciples, they fall down in terror at the voice. But then the cloud is gone, and the voice is gone, and it's Jesus, God's son, standing before them. They're to listen to him. He is the prophet like Moses, that Moses promised would come, and to whom he commanded the people to listen. And what's even more amazing is that Jesus is God's tabernacle as well. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, God's glory, the fullness of who God is, dwells in the tent of Jesus' body. We don't need a tent to keep the glory in anymore. We have Jesus. We could have never ascended the mountain of the Lord. And so God himself descended and came to be with us so that we could be with him forever. God's faithful son, Jesus Christ, he paved the way for everyone who trusts him to ascend the mountain of God and to dwell with God one day in the new creation that's coming. And Jesus is also our final priest. He is a faithful Adam. Remember, Adam was like a priest in Eden. Jesus is a faithful priest who offers up a final sacrifice for sinners, the sacrifice of himself. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, once for all time, to purify forever all who trust in him. Jesus died so that we don't have to spend eternity apart from God. And now through Jesus Jesus Christ's sacrifice and through faith in Jesus, we can become all that Israel should have been and failed to be. Failed to be. The apostle Peter says this so clearly. I love how Carl read from Peter earlier because we're going there. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 10. The apostle Peter quotes our passage Exodus 19 verse 6 and he applies it to Gentiles. We're not Jewish. He applies it to us and he says this. He says to the Gentile Christians, "You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood." Do you think of yourselves this way? Christian you are a royal priesthood. You are priests of the king. You are a people for God's own possession. You belong to him. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. The people of God. You have you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we draw to a close, know this. Through Jesus, you and I have become God's special possession. We belong to Jesus. He has purchased us with his blood. He's rescued us from slavery to sin and darkness and death. Through Jesus, we have become a royal priesthood. That means that you all, if you trust Jesus, you have direct access into God's Presence, you may, as the writer of Hebrews says, you may approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, because Jesus has made you clean. And through Jesus, you have become a holy nation, not because we are perfect, but because his blood has purified us from all our sin. And finally, through Jesus, and through his spirit dwelling in us, We are empowered to fulfill God's holy law through love. Not perfectly, yet, that's coming in the new creation, but we can fulfill it truly. As Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 12, the Father has qualified us now to share in the inheritance of the saints, of the holy ones, in light. By his Spirit, Our new and better Moses has put the power to, he has the power to put God's law on our hearts where it has to be for us to live in God's new world. And he can change us from the inside out. And if you trust Jesus, you are a walking, breathing, talking example of how Jesus has the power to change hearts and to give us clean hands and a pure heart and to wash our sins away, and enable us to ascend the mountain. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for these texts. Lord, there is so much here, and there is so much we didn't even cover. And I just pray that you would take the words that we have looked at, and you would press them upon our hearts. I pray that you would thrill us with this reality that you have descended that we may ascend. You have come down that we may go to live with you one day. Lord, it is amazing, and I pray that you would stir our hearts afresh with love for our Savior Jesus who made this all possible. And I ask that you would uh, convict us of all the ways that we still lift our souls up to idols and break your word. And I pray, Lord, I thank you for paying for those sins, and I ask that you would continue to purify us from them. In Jesus' name, amen.